Welcome to Lake Mount Worship Center, connecting you to the life-changing presence of Jesus Christ. We hope that you are blessed and inspired by today's message. All right, we're digging into the word of the Lord over the year about being a devoted people, those who want to go deeper in our devotion to the Lord. Wave at me if that's you. You want to go deeper in your devotion to the Lord. And so we want to move from just being people of devotion to becoming devoted, our, our very lives being what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, our reasonable worship being our lives, a living sacrifice. We sang about it this morning as we sang about making covenant with God that we lay our lives down and he gives us resurrection life in exchange. What a, what a wonderful God we serve. And so we want to be devoted people. So we're considering the devoted uh, life and the devotion of the early church, the first church, the first church that was birthed on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and the devotion of that church. We, we, we believe that we should be pursuing to have that same level of power and effectiveness that they had. And as we're claiming the prophetic word today and, and partnering with God, believing it's a new day, then what we're believing for is God, let the power that was on them rest upon us. Let us have that effectiveness. Let us be bold in witness and not just in witness, but then also in harvest and seeing people come in. And I need to say to you, these are days of harvest. These are exceptional days where God's conviction is being poured out on people and they're responding, praying the prayer of faith and coming into the kingdom of God. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's a privilege to be a part of a day like this. And we want to, in the time of rain, ask God for more rain. While he's pouring out conviction, we're saying, God, bring more of that. Give us more grace. And so the effectiveness and the power that rested upon the first church, if we want that to be our inheritance and what we walk in, we can't just wish for it. We need to actually say there must be some devotion that was connected to that. And thankfully in scripture, we have a, a, a clear list in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I want you to take your Bibles and go there with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, they devoted, everybody say devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We had a powerful time together last Sunday as we took time to break bread together. How many were here last Sunday as we broke bread together? And just really unpacking that act within communion, not just the, the, the solitary participation in the same room, but actually breaking bread with one another and recognizing that we discern the body of Christ in his physical flesh and suffering, but the body of Christ as the spiritual reality of our brothers and sisters that we are uh, joined to one another. And uh, we just had a great time doing that together last week. Today, I want us to look at becoming devoted to prayer. This is the fourth and final devotion of the church in the book of Acts. They were devoted to prayer. Prayer 
is the invitation of God to have a conversation with him. In fact, it is to join the conversation of the Trinity and to participate in the brokering of his will and his desire, the will of God into our lives and into our world. We have the privilege of partnering with God in prayer. Jeremiah 33 verse 3 says this, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Man, that's a good promise. That's a promise that deserves an amen and a highlighter. To highlight that, circle that, write it on your fridge, stick it on your mirror. Remember this word from the Lord. God says, call to me and I will answer you. Not I might, not, not occasionally. God says, call to me and I will answer you. And what will I do when I answer you? I will show you great and unsearchable things that you don't know. Listen, God wants to show you what you don't know. And what you don't know is a problem. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. It's, it's not okay to just remain ignorant and spiritually shallow. And so God invites us into a conversation with himself called prayer. And in that relationship and in that conversation, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to exchange your ignorance for my wisdom. I'm going to exchange your lack of knowledge for what I know and what you need to know. I remember when I was, it's probably grade nine or grade 10, I remember in science class, they were showing us videos of people that were standing in front of x-ray machines and they were watching themselves eat a sandwich and swallow it, you know, and watch it go down the tube into the stomach. And they're just basically living in front of these x-ray machines as if it were a camera because they were so fascinated by this new technology that could see under their skin. And what they didn't realize was that this new technology that could see under their skin was the result of radiation. And by just playing and eating and doing all this stuff in front of active radiation, these subjects who were excited about what they found out, they, they knew something now that they didn't know before, but there was something that they didn't know that was harmful. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. It's the things that we don't know that harm us. But we are not victim to our ignorance. God says, call to me. Call to me. And I will answer you. And I will show you great and unsearchable things which you do not know. Every believer in the sound of my voice should have a flicker of burning in your heart to say, I want that. I want to know what God wants to show me. I need the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon me. I cannot leave it to chance. God doesn't just say, guess what? I'm going to show you whatever you don't know. I'm here for you. That's a North American version of Christianity. God's word says, call to me. Somebody say, call to me. That's prayer. God says, call to me, and then I'll show you. He's a relational God. 
He's not interested in just giving you the easy button. He's saying, what I want is relationship with you. I'm not just trying to increase your knowledge. I want to increase relationship with you that you might know what you need to know through me. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we're going to take a look at this story from the Old Testament, from the life of David. And it's going to provide for us the picture of prayer. It's going to provide for us the picture of Jeremiah's invitation. Call to me, and I will answer you. I will show you great unsearchable things which you don't know. This is one of many examples in Scripture of the ways in which God answers that prayer of those who call to him. Second Samuel chapter 5, we'll look at verse 17, and it says this, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Let's pause our reading there. David was now anointed king over the joint tribes of Israel. See, there is a, when, when he became the king over Israel, the Philistines heard about it, and they came out, the Bible says, in full force to search for him, not because they wanted to congratulate him. It wasn't, hey, here's a box of chocolates and uh, well wishes. It was they came out in full force to look for him because he was stepping full force into his destiny. Now, what I'm trying to paint a picture from Scripture for you today is the understanding of this. There is a fight for your destiny. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said that the thief comes, speaking of Satan, a literal enemy and his forces, the demonic hordes of hell. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life to the full. Now, what that means is there is no neutral ground in your life. There is, there is no neutral ground, neutral territory where you can stand still and just assume you'll be left alone by God and the devil. The fact is God has a plan for your life. The devil has a plan for your life. God wants to bless you. The devil wants to steal and kill and destroy you. Now, in the story of, of David, we are fast-forwarded where we are picking up right now when we're in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so we have to rewind, and I'll do that briefly to just give you the context of where he finds himself in this text. David had 15 years earlier been anointed as a teenager in front of his brothers by the prophet Samuel. The anointing of God came upon him. That's the ceremonial oil that was gifted to the priests and the prophets in the Old Testament for marking out those who were set apart for the purpose of the Lord. And in this instance, Samuel came to visit the house of Jesse and look for a son whom God had directed him was going to be the next king of Israel. That anointing was significant. When the oil came on David, the Bible says that the Spirit of God came upon David in power in that moment. He had an anointing and an assignment. The anointing always comes with an assignment. That's what we call destiny. That's what we call your purpose, your calling. David had a calling and an anointing to fulfill that calling, and yet there was a 15-year waiting period before stepping into that calling. 
He was anointed to be king, and his family shrugged it off, and he went back to tending sheep. You know the story of how he went to check on his brothers in the military campaign against Goliath, and everyone was scared, but David wasn't because the Spirit of God was resting upon him in power. He had an anointing for leadership, knew he was going to be king, and knew that the nation could not fall into Philistine hands. Now, if you hold 2 Samuel 5 in your mind while I tell you that, you realize why they came out in full force looking for David. They had a 15-year-old memory. This is the kid who can take down giants with a slingshot. And if this guy's in charge, we're in trouble. And so David takes down Goliath. Then he goes into Saul's service. He has an anointing on his life so that everything that he does experiences the grace and favor and the touch of God's spirit. So Saul, who was the current king, was tormented by evil spirits. And so David came and he played the harp for him. And because of the anointing on his life, David didn't even have to sing anything. But the anointing on him brokered into the atmosphere, the presence of God, that caused for a conflict where God won and the devil fleed. And Saul came to peace because of what was on David's life. And yet because of the torment that was on Saul... And because he knew that he had lost his leadership and he perceived what was on David, see, game recognizes game. Anointing recognizes anointing. And when when Saul recognized what was on David, the demons that were, were possessing and influencing him stirred him up and he took a javelin and threw it at David to pin him to the wall. David was anointed to be king and found that there was no neutral ground in his destiny. And I'm trying to paint a picture for you in case you think, well, man, that's tough for David. I'm telling you, there's no neutral ground in your life. Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold. I don't want you to be one, you know, to, to be lukewarm and just think there's some neutral, neutral ground. Go all in with me and I will go all in with you. And so David has to flee from Saul and he runs. He doesn't fight back. Saul mobilized the entire army of Israel against David to kill him. Now we know this, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities and spiritual rulers in high places. At the same time, God off, or, sorry, at the same time, the enemy will often use people who are disobedient to God to wage attack. So David, the man after God's own heart, listen, he did not fight back. Well, that's, there's devils in Saul, and God's anointed me to be king. And I know I don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but I can see the demons in him. And so it's time for me to just take my stand and fight back and just do it in faith. And, you, you know, just kind of break the law for a second and then hope that God will bless me after. No. In fact, there was a couple of times where God tested David's heart so so intensely that he delivered Saul into his hand. And, and David, one time he cut the corner of Saul's robe and the Bible says he was conscience stricken. Why? He was conscience stricken as he stood and waved the little flap of his, of his robe at him and said, Saul, I, I could have killed you, but he felt conscience stricken. Why? Because what he was saying in cutting a corner off his robe is, I'm better than you. I'm faster than you. I could have killed you, but I'm better than you. And David felt conscience stricken about that. The men that were following David felt annoyed with David. Like, hey, buddy, just loosen up. If you don't want to kill him, I will. A couple of times this happened. 
But David refused to lay hold of his destiny with the arm of the flesh. He waited for the Lord. So now Saul, over the course of time, he falls in battle. And you would assume if you were David, okay, now the people will recognize what's on me. Nope. One tribe recognized what was on David, the tribe of Judah. The other 11 tribes went after Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and they anointed him to be king. And so now, now Ishbosheth is king for another seven years. So David runs from Saul for seven years, and then he's king over the solitary tribe of Judah for seven or eight years or so. And then, then when Ishbosheth dies, the people go, wait a second. We recognize what God placed on David. Let's anoint him to be king. This is just for free, but every leader needs to have two anointings. You need anointing from God and you need anointing from the people. You can't lead people just because you're anointed by God. The people have to say, we recognize what's on your life. And where we have conflict with destiny is when we try to go ahead and do things in the arm of our own strength. There's a lot of people building little huddles and little huts of, of little followers because they would not wait for God to open the door for them. David waited for God. The man after God's own heart does not fight back. And then the Lord delivered him. He becomes king. Now, all of that to say, sometimes the challenges that you're going through are preparation for your destiny. You might think if you were David, man, I'm anointed to be king and then I have to go through all of this hassle. The current king is persecuting me. You know, then after that ends, then like the majority go after that guy's son and I'm just over here leading this one tribe. You might think, man, I've been through it. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. It's so hard to be me. I don't know, you know, how to make my destiny happen. Here's a pro tip. Don't ever make your destiny happen. Wait for God. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for God. Easier said than done, but it's way harder to go and try to do it yourself. If you do it yourself, you're living in a raindrop of what could have been an ocean. So... David was being tested. And then you go, okay, now I'm king. And what happens next? Now, now the Israelites are behind you and the Philistines are all angry. Oh, I thought it was going to get easier. I stepped into my destiny. There's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. God has a plan for you. So does the devil. But listen, you're going to need to know how to get strong in God when the going gets tough. David had built a practice of seeking the face of the Lord. So when the Philistines go hunting for David, the verse that we just read from 2 Samuel 5 verse 17 says that he went down to the stronghold. He goes into the stronghold. Let me just tell you, you need a stronghold for your life. You need a fortress of protection where you can be still in the midst of chaos. That's called the secret place. That's called the place of prayer. You need to have a place of prayer in your life. How do I know that the stronghold for David was a place of prayer? Let's keep reading in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 18. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Verse 19, so David inquired of the Lord. Circle that, highlight that. So David inquired of the Lord. What's that mean? David prayed. David called to the Lord 
because he didn't know what to do. Call to me and I will answer you and I'll show you things, great and unsearchable things that you don't know. David went to the stronghold. When the enemy came in like a flood, he went to God and said, what do I do? He inquired of the Lord. Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. I want you to see that prayer is a conversation. It's not a monologue. It's not just walking in, running through a list, as if God cares if you have a list. Sorry to the list, people. But I, I, don't, think that, I don't think Jesus is in heaven going, um, you missed number 19. So, I guess I'm not doing that one today. Strength, huh? I don't think God cares about a list. If, you, if a list is helpful to you, good. That's good. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, it's more than a list, more than a monologue, more than coming in with everything that you want or need or whatever. It's pressing into the Lord, calling to him with the anticipation. Jeremiah 33, and I will answer you. It's listening for the answer. It's not just stating my need, it's listening for what he says in response. So the Lord says, go, I'm going to hand them over to you. Verse 20, so David went down to Belperazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Belperazim. That's what Belperazim means, the Lord who breaks out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Look at verse 21 again. The Philistines abandoned their idols there. What does that mean? That means that the conflict in David's life had a spiritual origin. So does yours. The Philistines were motivated by idol worship. You can think, well, that's stupid. Those are just little, little statues. Yeah, that's all they are. But behind the statue is a demonic entity that people are appealing to. Their, their, their religion, their false belief is, it's not just going to, you know, people call it the universe. Well, they're talking to, the, they're talking to devils. Really? You can't just talk to the universe? No. They had a hatred for the anointing. Saul didn't have to worry about the Philistines that much. Because he was of the same spirit, he began to hate the anointing. The Philistines hated the anointing because it was a threat. Saul hated, hated the anointing because it was a reminder of where he had fallen from. Regardless of the motivation, the anti-anointing spirit is real. The word Christ in the New Testament means anointed. Anti-anointing is anti-Christ. The spirit of the anti-Christ, the spirit of anti-anointing, that's real. And it works in the hearts of those who are disobedient. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were objects of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Hallelujah. What's scripture saying? It's saying... That when you were born again, you switch sides. There's no neutral ground. When you were living before Christ, you can now look and see what was really going on. That's what Paul's saying. Look back at your own testimony. Tell yourself the truth. You weren't just struggling. You weren't just, you know, a decent guy who was trying to do his best. Paul says, tell yourself the truth. You were under the influence of the spirit of the Antichrist that was working against the purpose of God in your life. You were playing for the wrong side. You thought that you were living in freedom, but you were bound to your sin. You were bound to transgression. You were bound to rebellion against God. But God, who is rich in mercy, opened your eyes and you came to an understanding of the power of the cross. Jesus set you free. You crossed sides, went from darkness to light, from death to life, and now you live to do God's will on the earth. Hallelujah. No wonder we call it good news. So you went from God being against you, not a popular thought, but it says we were by nature objects of wrath before Jesus. Before Jesus came into, before we experienced salvation, we were by nature objects of wrath. So we went from God being against us to God being for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I know that's not popular to say, oh, God, God was against me. Yes, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. But like, I didn't know better. I know. Isn't God rich in mercy that he opened your heart to the need for a savior? You weren't a decent guy struggling. You were bound in darkness. Tell yourself the truth. And now I've been set free from those things and I have a new nature, and I'm God's workmanship, and I'm, I've switched sides. There's no neutral territory. And you know what? When you change your jersey halfway through the game, the guys on the other side aren't happy about it. And so you're like, oh, well, doesn't that mean I, I kind of get a bullseye on me? Doesn't that make me a target when I get anointed? Listen, the devil hates you anyways. When you were playing for his team, he didn't like you. He just had you. You were under his influence. What kind of influence? The ruler of the air, the influence of your thoughts, an atmosphere that confirmed all of your stupid thinking, an atmosphere that con con confirmed every bad decision. Oh, yeah, we all do that. 
What'd you do this weekend? Oh, man, I got so wasted and I puked all Sunday. <laughs> That's so dumb. You ever got together with a bunch of people and said, man, when I had the flu, I was puking. <laughs> Let's get together and talk about it. I was so sick. How sick were you? I was barfing everywhere. Woohoo! What's the difference? Oh, I did it to myself on purpose. That's even stupider. <laughs> so we're under the influence of flawed thinking. It's okay, Kieran will couple, she'll pull it together. <laughs> we were under the influence of thinking that confirmed, can I just, like sin makes you stupid. Can we just be honest? Let's tell ourselves the truth. The things that I was doing, I'm like, what was I thinking? But I couldn't see it then, why? Because I didn't have grace. Now there's grace in my life. I'm empowered to live a whole new kind of life. Now I recognize I'm God's workmanship made in his image to do what he set in advance for me to do. I have a destiny and there's no, no neutral ground for me to step into that destiny. I switch sides, change jerseys, and now instead of God being against me, God is for me. So you're like, well, does it make me a target of the devil? Yeah, but look who's on your team. And since God is for you, who can be against you? So how do we access the power of God? You need a stronghold for your life. You need a stronghold of prayer. You need a stronghold of prayer for your life, for your family, for your kids, for your health, for your finances, for your destiny. Now you're saved by God's grace. You used to, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you used to follow the ways of the world. You used to be under the influence of the ruler of the power of the air. Not anymore. Now, the mask is, I could see, and I'm following Jesus. Now I'm saved by grace. Now I'm aware of my created purpose to bring glory to God. So don't be surprised there's an enemy who's against you. Be confident that there's an almighty God who's for you. He wants to lead and bless your life. He wants to anoint you for victory. Now listen to me. You cannot follow God's lead by instinct or feel. You follow him by prayer. He says, call to me, and I will answer you. I'll show you great and unsearchable things that you don't know. You don't know this. Oh, but I love Jesus. Yeah, but you still don't know this. Oh, but I love God, and God is good, and he's for me. Right. So now what? <laughs> Doesn't he just drop it on me? No. He says, call to me. You need to cultivate and build a life of prayer, a conversation with God, the God of the universe, whom Jesus revealed to us as our Father. The breakthrough that you need in your life does not originate in the natural realm. It originates in the heart of God. That's why we need to pray. We need to learn his heart. We need to get our eyes off of our need and get our eyes on him. We need to lift our voice to the Lord in prayer. Prayer is the means by which God has chosen to release his desires on the earth. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wait a second, why did he tell us to pray that? Isn't it just going to happen? Doesn't God just do what he wants? 
Well, either we're just praying this prayer just to be good little Christians or it actually accomplishes something. So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven isn't just a nice thing to say. It's actually understanding, oh, I'm all in on Jesus' side. And what he wants to happen on the earth, he invites me into a partnership. How? Prayer. That's why Jesus gives us this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth, my life, my family, this church, this city, this nation, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we forgive others who sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. So what does this mean? It means that God's desires don't automatically get accomplished on the earth. He expresses his desire in and through his logos and rhema word and then he invites us into a partnership with him in prayer. So in David's situation, he called on the Lord and God told him what to do. He said, go ahead and attack those Philistines. They're coming for you, but actually they're stepping into a trap because I'm coming for them. Lord, should I go against them? Yes. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 5, verse 22. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord and he answered, do not go straight up. But circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. And as soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly. Because that will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Man, it stinks when God's against you. But boy, is it ever good when God is for you. So what does this mean? It means prayer is not presumption. It's not assuming that what you did last time is what you do this time. Philistines came and they attacked David in the exact same way. And he had the wisdom to not just go, oh, well, last time I just attacked him, so I'm going to do the same thing. He had the wisdom to go back to the stronghold and ask God again. Should I attack him this time? God's like, mm, not the same way. Don't go straight at him. This time, just flank him from the back. And then when you hear the sound of the trees, I don't know what that means. Just listen for the trees. You hear a weird sound? Go. Okay. What does that mean? It means everything doesn't have to make sense to you. You just got to follow in faith. Prayer is not presumption. Prayer is dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's a commitment to walk with God and listen for his direction. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. You got a problem? Call to me, God says, and I will answer you, and I'll show you what you need to know. David said in Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. What's that mean? Prayer makes us teachable. Don't be like a stubborn mule that needs a bit in its mouth and a boot in the side to do what it's supposed to do. Prayer causes me to come to the Lord instead of waiting for him to inflict me into obedience. I want to be teachable. I want to be prayerful. I want to be prayerful because God says, call to me and I'm going to answer you. Our God is a compassionate God. 
Psalm 103 says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed and he knows that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness is with their children's children. Those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Our God is a compassionate God. Our God is a loving God. Our God is a good God. And when we're ignorant and we don't know what to do, God doesn't just say deal with it. He says, call to me. I'm going to answer you. I'm going to show you what you need to know. I'm going to show you great and unsearchable things. The invitation to prayer is the devotion of the early church that they recognize God is calling me to get out of dependence on my own thinking and my own strength and my own strategies and lean into the mind of the Lord like David did and say, God, should I rise up? And this time, should I rise up differently? I just want to follow in obedience to you. God says, I'm going to show you my strength and I'm going to show myself strong to you who fear me because you're called according to my purpose you've switched sides and now I'm for you and I'm going to release destiny into your life hallelujah would you close your eyes with me this morning hallelujah come on somebody thank the Lord what an invitation what an invitation to prayer it's preceded by the invitation to know the Lord and if you're here this morning however you came into this place if you're sitting in this room and you're like, I don't know God the way you're talking about, Pastor. It begins with prayer. It begins with a conversation with God. Not just out of your mind, but out of a revelation that comes by the Holy Spirit. Recognizing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Tell yourself the truth. You're not just a decent guy struggling. You're not just a good girl doing her best. You know at the core of things that you're a sinner and that it's hopeless outside of God having mercy on you. I've got good news for you. God's a merciful God. And the pathway of his mercy is the cross of Jesus Christ. The ultimate price was paid for every person who would hear his voice that Jesus is God taking on flesh so that he could take on your sin and your, your separation from him. Close the gap by the shedding of his blood and open up eternal life to you through faith in his name. If you're here this morning and you need to submit your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, maybe you've heard this many times and you've just been trying to coast around it or ease yourself into it. It's not an ease yourself into it type of thing. It's all or nothing. There's no neutral ground. And today, if you need to experience salvation, it's not, oh God, just, just come and make my life better. It's God, save me. Make me new. Thank you for listening to today's message. 
If you would like more information on who we are, visit our website at lakemount.ca or download our app for your mobile device.